Hi everyone. We've got quite a long and difficult passage this evening, so I've split the sermon into two. The first half we'll be looking at the historical background to the reading so that we can understand it as we hear it read. And then we will hear the passage. And then in the second half, I'll take us through five lessons for us to learn from that reading. So let me pray as we come to all of that. Father in heaven, as we come to this difficult part of your word, we realise that it's difficult because it confronts our pride and it calls us out on our sins. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us humble and teachable spirits this evening. And Father, may we have the right response to your word, a response of humility, of repentance and of coming to you in worship and to receive your mercy. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Well, as far as the historical background is concerned, I want to take us to a period of time 800 years before our reading, which was the time of Moses and the covenant at Sinai. Part of that covenant was that if the people of Israel obeyed God, they would be allowed to stay in the promised land. And if they disobeyed God, God would kick them out of the promised land. So let me read some verses from Deuteronomy that set that out and we'll see how things have come to pass a bit later on in Ezekiel in our reading this evening. Let me read from Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 4, uh, sorry, 15 to 27. Moses says to the people, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman, or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground, or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshipping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. After you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and arousing his anger, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. That was 800 years before our reading. And as we come to our reading in Ezekiel 800 years later, we find that actually that prophecy has come true and the people have turned to idols. And as a result of that, the Northern Kingdom of Israel has already been wiped out by Assyria. And now we're in the southern kingdom of Judah around Jerusalem and Babylon has already attacked it once. In 605 BC, the first wave of Babylonian invasion came through and the Bab Babylonians took away captives uh, from among the elite, people like Daniel, who would have gone in the first wave of 605 BC. And then almost a decade later in 597 BC, the Babylonians came again and there was a second invasion. And again, the Babylonians took capti uh, captives from the elite. And this time Ezekiel would have been taken. And after that, in 593 B 
BC, we get to chapter one of the book of Ezekiel, which uh, Chris preached on a couple of weeks ago. And this is where Ezekiel is 30 years old and would have been appointed as a priest, was he not in captivity in Babylon? But God calls him to be a prophet. That's in 593. And a year later in 592 BC, we get to our reading today, which predicts yet another Babylonian invasion, a third wave. And that would come in 587 to 586 BC, when Babylon came for the third time to Israel, and this time totally wiped it out. And our reading today consists of, first of all, an introduction where Ezekiel sees a vision of God in very much the same way that he did in the first chapter. God picks him up by the hair and transports him to Jerusalem in this vision. And then Ezekiel sees four visions of idolatry in the temple of Jerusalem. And as we go through the reading, count those four. Uh, the first three end with, you will see things that are more detestable than this. So you get through one, things that are more detestable, you're into two, and so on, four times. And after that, God pronounces judgment on the people. And in the vision, judgment is carried out by six soldiers who represent the Babylonian conquest, which would completely defeat the southern kingdom uh, about five years later. So, as I said, we'll look at what that means for us today in just a minute. But now let's hear that reading from Ezekiel chapters eight and nine. Thanks, Sam. So the reading is Ezekiel chapter eight uh, and chapter nine through to verse 10. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came on me there. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire. And from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court, where the idol that provoked to jealousy stood. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as in the vision I'd seen in the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, look toward the north. So I looked, and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The utterly detestable things the Israelites are doing here things that will drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance to the court. I looked and I saw a hole in the wall. He said to me, Son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and I saw a doorway there. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked and detestable things they're doing here. So I went in and looked. And I saw portrayed all over the walls all kinds of crawling things and unclean animals and all the idols of Israel. In front of them stood seventy elders of Israel, and Jazaniah, son of Shaphan, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand, and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol? They say, the Lord does not see us, the Lord has forsaken the land. Again, he said, 
you will see them doing things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and I saw women sitting there mourning the god Tammuz. He said to me, Do you see this, son of man? You will see things that are even more detestable than this. He then brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and there at the entrance to the temple, between the portico and the altar, were about twenty-five men. With their backs toward the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, they were bowing down to the sun in the east. He said to me, Have you seen this, son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the people of Judah to do the detestable things they're doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually arouse my anger? Look at them putting the branch to their nose. Therefore I will deal with them in anger. I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. Then I heard him call out in a loud voice, Bring near those who are appointed to execute judgment on the city, each with a weapon in his hand. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen, who had a writing kit at his side. They came in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim, where it had been, and moved to the threshold of the temple. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing kit at his side, and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. As I listened, he said to the others, Follow him through the city and kill, without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter the old men, the young men and women, the mothers and children. But do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the old men who were in front of the temple. Then he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go! So they went out and began killing throughout the city. While they were killing and I was left alone, I fell face down, crying out, Alas, Sovereign Lord, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel in this outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? He answered me, The sin of the people of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed, and the city is full of injustice. They say, The Lord has forsaken the land, the Lord does not see, so I will not look on them with pity or spare them, but I will bring down on their own heads what they have done. So I want to take away from that reading five lessons for us today. And the first of those lessons is this, idolatry is evil. Now, the reading said a lot about idolatry, so this will be the longer of the five points. But we probably have to ask ourselves the question, is this really relevant for today? Because um, you don't see much idolatry taking place in the United Kingdom. But actually, in some ways, we do. You might have seen Tim Keller's book that I've got here, Counterfeit Gods, in which he makes the case that anything that we worship instead of God, whether that's money or power or status or comfort, holidays, uh, the latest phone, the latest games console, whatever it might be, is really an idol because we're placing that as more important than God in our lives. And as you probably remember, Colossians 3 verse 5 in the New Testament says, greed is idolatry. And if we don't live in a particularly religious 
uh, country, we certainly live in a greedy one. And so greed is idolatry. There's actually idolatry all around us. And idolatry is evil. You probably noticed how many times in our reading God used the word detestable to describe idolatry. So in chapter 8, verse 6, let me read it. And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The utterly detestable things the Israelites are doing here, things that will drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see things that are even more detestable. He said it says it again in verses 9 and 13 and 15. And then in verse 17, he said to me, have you seen this son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the people of Judah to do the detestable things they're doing here? We are always in danger of making sin trivial, as if it doesn't matter. And God says, is it trivial? It's detestable. So here are three reasons why idolatry is evil, why it's described as detestable. The first is that God is alive and glorious and an idol is not. If you uh, do you remember back in the day, they used to have those little robot friends like Furbies and Tamagotchis. And uh, the point was that you would interact with this little digital creature and keep it alive and that sort of thing. But if you chose one of those over your best friend, I imagine your best friend would be quite disappointed and quite insulted. And also you would be demeaning yourself as well, because people are made for friendships with people, not with little robot things. And that's exactly what idolatry is. We're, we're demeaning ourselves and we're insulting God by choosing something that is second best to him. God makes this point when he shows Ezekiel two things in the very first part of this vision. Ezekiel is grabbed by the hair, transported to Jerusalem. And on the one hand, he sees what he describes as the idol that provokes jealousy. This is in chapter eight, verse three. And then he sees something else before double taking back to this idol that provokes jealousy. So he's, he's seen the idol, looks at something else and then looks back to the idol. That something else is what makes the difference here. Verse four. He's seen the idol. He turns the other way. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as in the vision I had seen in the plain. So the two things Ezekiel has seen, the idol that causes jealousy, we don't know what it was, maybe an Asherah pole or something, but an idol that is making God jealous because it's in his own temple. And then Ezekiel sees the glory of God. God is alive. He is glorious. He is majestic. And the idol is nothing but a bit of wood stuck up in the temple. So that's the, the first reason why idolatry is so detestable, because God is glorious and an idol is not. And by worshipping any idol, could be money, we're demeaning ourselves and we're insulting God. Secondly, good things come from God, not from idols. So in verse 14 of chapter 8, you have a group of women there, and it says they're mourning the god Tammuz. Tammuz was a Sumerian shepherd. He might not actually have been considered a god, I'm not sure, but he was in their um, legend, a Sumerian shepherd who married the goddess Ishtar. And when Tammuz died, fertility ceased on the earth. And so 
Um, they are mourning Tammuz to bring him back from the dead so that fertility can carry on. And you get a similar sort of picture, actually, where you have these men worshipping the sun a bit later on with their backs to the temple of God. The sun is this image of new life and uh, spring and uh, resurrection, if you like. In, in all these cases, they are looking for life and for good things, good gifts in things that can't provide them instead of in God. And that will never satisfy. It'll be like drinking salty water when you're thirsty. They'll be pouring themselves into the worship of Tammuz and not be receiving the life that they want because they're not looking to God for it. Greed today is a very good example of this. How much money is enough? Well, just a little bit more. And asking an idol for good things is a bit like expecting a vending machine to produce a three-course meal for you. You'll be paying at the money, but you'll never get what you want because it's incapable of doing it. That's the second reason idolatry is so detestable to God. And the third reason is that idolatry leads to injustice and violence. This is chapter 8, verse 17. He said to me, have you seen this son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the people of Judah to do the detestable things they are doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually arouse my anger? He answered me, the sin of the people of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed and the city is full of injustice. If greed is idolatry, as the Bible says, then it doesn't take much imagination for us to see how idolatry leads to injustice and violence. But um, other forms of idolatry do the same and sometimes in more subtle ways. And what I want us to notice is that the reason idolatry is so detestable to God is as much about our good as it is about his glory. Idolatry is detestable to God because it demeans and humiliates people. It leaves them dissatisfied and gasping for more. And it results in violence and injustice. It's also detestable to God for his own sake, because an idolater has chosen a, a fake friend over a true friend. An idolater has been ungrateful for the good things that God has provided and is looking for good things from something that cannot provide them. It's an insult to God. And an idolater, if it causes injustice and violence, is playing God with people that God has made and loves. So God doesn't want a person's heart to be wavering between two rivals, God and something that isn't God, but the person, um, you know, is actually that thing is lifeless. It is damaging. It is powerless. And God doesn't want us to be wavering between that and the true and living God. So as we go through each of these five uh, lessons for us to learn from this reading, I want to ask us a question for self-examination, uh, a question for reflection. And my first question is this. Does God have any rivals in your life? Here's lesson two. Secret sins are seen.
This is chapter 8, verse 7. Then he brought me to the entrance to the court. I looked and I saw a hole in the wall. He said to me, son of man, now dig into that wall. So I dug into the wall and saw a doorway there. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing there. Ezekiel had to dig through a wall and then open a closed door. And only then does he see what these people inside are doing. But God already knew. Obviously, there's nothing more embarrassing and shameful than being caught doing something wrong. But sometimes even behind closed doors, we feel we have a kind of safety in numbers because, you know, we might know that we're doing something wrong. It might just be a thought or it might be an action. But we think, well, everybody thinks like this at times or everybody does this at times. So I'm no worse than any of them. But what happens next in Ezekiel's vision completely blows that idea out of the water. This is verse nine where I left off. And he said to me, go and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing here. So I went in and looked and I saw portrayed over all the walls, all kinds of crawling things and unclean animals and all the idols of Israel. Remember that text from Deuteronomy that I read earlier. In front of them stood 70 elders of Israel and Jeazaniah, son of Shaphan, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. So Ezekiel saw 70 people. That's quite a big crowd. But there in front of him, as clear as day, he sees a face that he recognises. This guy with a difficult name to pronounce, Jeazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Isn't that shameful to that man? He maybe thought he had safety in numbers. He was behind closed doors, nobody saw, and he was doing it with 70 other people, but he was recognised and his face was out there. And God doesn't think, well, you know, everybody's doing that, so I suppose that's fine. He looks at each one of us individually and our secret sins are seen. So my second question for reflection and self-examination is this. What are you like behind closed doors? Here's the third lesson I think we can take away from our passage this evening. Leaders who sin bring suffering. Remember that the 70 people Ezekiel saw were 70 elders or leaders in Israel. And to, to state the obvious, leaders lead, whether that's by example or whether by setting rules. And if the leaders here had set an appropriate example and had set appropriate rules, the Babylonian invasion would not be coming. As it was, the leaders set a bad example. They were worshipping idols themselves. So how can they expect the people to do any different? They set a bad example, they set, a, they set bad rules, and as a result, in Ezekiel's vision, you'll probably remember this as standing out as particularly poignant, Ezekiel sees the suffering of innocent people alongside guilty people, because he's seeing the, the coming invasion 
of an army and an invading army doesn't worry too much about civilian casualties back then. So in chapter 9 verse 6, God says to these six soldiers who represent Babylon's invasion, slaughter the old men, the young men and women, the mothers and the children. It's good for us to distinguish here between punishment and consequences. God is not punishing innocent children for something they haven't done. Innocent children are suffering the consequences of somebody else's sin, of their leader's sin. And I mean, how many people, how many innocent people today are starving in countries where the leaders are greedy and selfish? And it's because of that greed and selfishness that the countries are going to ruin. People get quite upset by verses like this in the Bible, but would they prefer to imagine that we live in a, wor a world where a person's evil only affects that person and has no consequences for anyone else? Because if they imagine that, that's not the real world. Ultimate justice takes place beyond this life. But in this life, in the meantime, sin has consequences and leaders who sin bring suffering. Now, some people are leaders in obvious ways. Maybe you're the boss at work or um, something like that. But many of us are leaders in less obvious ways. Maybe parents, grandparents. If you're a child watching this, maybe you're an older sibling. In a sense, you're kind of a leader. Maybe you're a social media influencer. Or you might just be the sort of personality that people look up to and people defer to. You are a leader. And all of us in that kind of position need to remember that leaders who sin bring suffering. So my third question for reflection and self-examination is this. Who might suffer as a result of your sin? Fourth lesson is that there is a point of no return. In our church, we rightly focus on the gospel. We rightly focus on God's grace. We rightly focus on the mercy that is available through Jesus. But one of the dangers of preaching Christ's forgiveness week by week, not many dangers, admittedly, and it's exactly the right thing to do. But one of the dangers is that we can end up taking it for granted. I was on a plane. Oh, excuse me. I was on the plane on the way to Athens with a load of school children once, and the whole plane was taken up with school children. And I remember as we got off the plane, we walked through it, and there was rubbish everywhere. It was absolutely filthy, and it was quite disgraceful, really. And the children just were happy to throw their rubbish away because they knew that somebody else would clean it up. And that's it's not a big thing, but it's a bit shocking. Shocking that they could treat somebody else like that. That they could take somebody's work for granted. But are we in danger of doing the same with Jesus's life and his death on the cross? Are we in the position where we don't take sin seriously because we think, well, God will clean up after us? 
And so in this vision of Ezekiel, God says enough. Um, here's chapter 8, verse 18. Therefore, I will deal with them in anger. I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. In chapter 9, verse 9. He answered me, the sin of this of the people of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed and the city is full of injustice. They say, the Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord does not see. So I will not look on them with pity or spare them, but I will bring down on their own heads what they have done. I take it none of us wants to end up at this point of no return. So before it's all late, uh, before it's too late, let's all ask ourselves the question. Are there areas of your life where you're taking God's forgiveness for granted? The final lesson, the fifth lesson, is that God's judgment is just. So we just read verse 10. God says, so I will not look on them with pity or spare them. But I will bring down on their own heads what they have done is the man who accompanies the six soldiers. This is chapter nine, verse two. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen who had a writing kit at his side. Now, a man clothed in linen is not a soldier. He's a record keeper. He's an administrator. His whole purpose in this vision is to show that God distinguishes between those who do evil and those who mourn evil. So the reading goes on, go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. This man in linen is told. And then it goes on, as I listened, he said to the others, follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter the old men, the young men and women, the mothers and children. But do not touch anyone who has the mark. So how do we reconcile this record keeper with the fact that children die? Well, it comes back to the difference between judgment and consequences. We have to remember that this is a prophecy of Babylon's literal invasion of Israel, of Jerusalem in particular. And during that invasion, innocent people died, including children. And that was a consequence of sin. But the prophecy is also figurative. It talks about a literal invasion, but there's a figurative element to it. And that figurative element tells us that everyone who has God's mark on them is safe. In Ezekiel, those who had the mark were those who mourned over the evil that they saw around them. They didn't go along with it. It upset them. And this is a picture of true repentance and worship of God. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And it's this kind of mourning that he had in mind, the kind of mourning that recognises evil in ourselves and all around us and wants to have nothing to do with it, but just to worship God alone. And this 
as we all know, is only possible because of what Jesus has done in living for us and dying for us on the cross so that the punishment for our sins could be taken away. It's only possible because of what the Holy Spirit does in uniting us to Christ so that Christ's righteousness can be credited to us, can be imputed to us. And so my final question has to be, if God's judgment is just and unavoidable, will we cry out to him for mercy and accept his salvation through Jesus Christ? That is the only way to be saved, but it is a way that is available to everybody today. And so I urge you to take him up on that offer. Let's close in prayer. Father, we have just looked at a very sobering part of your word. And we pray that we would not treat sin lightly. But we humbly come to you and ask for mercy. And we thank you, Father, that mercy is available to us today through Jesus Christ. And we praise you for that. And as we sing our final song, we ask that we would truly be in awe of what Christ has done for us in redeeming us from something so evil that we have such a tendency to do and to think. So thank you, Lord. Amen.